Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today's Spirit in Action guest is David Abaz. In 1987, David and his wife Lisa bought and built their off-the-grid Round River Farm in Finland, Minnesota, from the ground up, starting with a 30-year plan. Having completed that phase and needing to create additional plans to allow them to live sustainably on the land throughout their full lives, they created an updated 10-year strategic plan addressing aspects of energy, transportation, water, shelter, food, work community, and spirituality. Having been friends for multiple decades and having watched David and Lisa convert their spiritually rooted and intellectually powered values, insights, and systems into reality has inspired me and can perhaps serve as inspiration for all people who aspire to be environmentally responsible. Big thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance today, and make sure that you check out the full uncut version of this interview on northernspiritradio.org with important excerpts that just don't fit into our 55-minute broadcast. David Abaz joins us today via Zoom. David, so great to have you back for Spirit in Action. Great to be here. We have you back to share your 10-year strategic plan. Actually, the reason I wanted to talk about this is the wonderful way that it interweaves values and technology and foresight, planning for the earth. What led you to create your 10-year strategic plan? Well, my 30-year previous plan had terminated. I'd gone through the 30-year plan. And after two years of living without a plan, I decided it was time to plan out and be more intentional with choices in our life for the next 10 years. And being that we're older, we thought we should do it 10 years at a time at this point. Is that saying that you're not planning on 30 years? Oh, probably am, but uh, who knows? So 10 years was kind of the plan to get us to retirement. And hopefully then things will be a little less complicated. Well, let's talk about the employment situation because certainly ecology, environmentalism, spirituality, and technology are all wrapped up in what you're doing. But you and Lisa are now in which decade of your life? We're in our the latter part of our fifth decade, just about to hit the sixth decade. Employment has changed for you significantly. I think when I first met you, there were a couple outside jobs, but they weren't really big and they weren't major income sources for you. I still think you had your CSA running on your property. Talk about what's changed employment-wise, which changes, of course, your financial situation. For the first 20 years of our 35 years of living here, we pretty much were at the poverty level, according to the statistics, with two children. And we had up to seven different jobs at a time, each providing some part of employment. One of them was running our family farm, where at peak, we ran a community-supported agriculture, CSA, with 65 shares and three farmers market, all on a very small amount of very fertile land. That felt really good. That was really right livelihood. It was growing food, growing soil, and providing really nutritious 
calories for our neighbors and our friends and acquaintances up and down the North Shore of Lake Superior. What has that transitioned to over the 30 years of your plan? I mean, I don't think you plan to be where you are right now. Well, actually, my 30-year plan ended up pretty close to what I imagined. I'm not governor of, of Minnesota. That was on the plan. <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah, there, there. that got uh, nixed probably in the 20th year by my wife when she basically said, here's the deal. We need to talk about this now. If you're still going for becoming governor, I need to know now because I don't want to be part of that. <laughs> and so she gave me an ultimatum. She said, don't run for governor and we can stay together. Or if you run, I'm leaving. <laughs> and I told her it was unlikely I would win. She said, but the running would be too much for her. And so I had to make that decision because I was already 10 years from my run and I was doing the steps that were in my 30 year plan to move in that direction. So I made the decision at that point to stay with my wife and negate that personal goal, which was at the end of our 30 year plan that we started with. And so that's a big change. But all in all, as many changes, either we make the changes feel good and justify them, but certainly there's plenty of ways to justify that change in a very positive note. You know, pretty much along with all our diversity of jobs, everything from installing solar panels, solar hot water systems, to doing activist work with land use on water quality, to being a lighthouse keeper, to doing all sorts of types of, of fun jobs along the way. I ended up getting a job about four and a half years ago with the University of Minnesota. And my job consists of doing basically everything I used to do in my spare time for no money. It allows me to do it in my full time with money. And so that has led us along with previous jobs leading up to that for us to change our income level. Let's say in Social Security at the current rate when we were starting out, you know, I was making $4,000, $5,000, $6,000 a year. So now with my latest incomes, which included research, consulting, and now the university position, let's say we're getting paid a bit more than that per year. Plus, as I took this university job, it's the first time I got healthcare. And so that's been a real treat. At the same time, my wife also started a part-time job as an accountant for a nonprofit and then became the director of that nonprofit. And that's called North Shore Area Partners. And that is established, well, Lisa helped establish it further to not only do chores for the elderly to help keep them in their homes, but to also provide in-home care. And so when she started at North Shore Area Partners, there was three employees, and now there's 15 and more employees with a 6,000 square foot office and meeting place with nurses and all sorts of expertise and services for people who basically had to leave the area once they came to a certain level of need for care. And so uh, she is currently in a full-time position as well as the executive director of that so we both have culminated into higher paying jobs with healthcare and benefits. And uh, this led us to our final phase of now we have some money for the first time in our life. What could we do to finish out our dreams and our aspirations for living the life we intended when we started this 35 years ago? And our start was planned to be to live a fossil fuel free life. 
and to live simply, quote unquote, simply, so that others may simply live. And those were kind of our founding mantra. And through the years and through the learnings and through the experiments we did on our farm and homestead and with each other, frankly, we have come out to this 10-year plan, which gets us the rest of the way towards our dreams and hopefully enables us to not have to sell our land to live out the rest of our lives. And so we're in that process of through these changes, through these conditions, of being able to put our land into a trust for ongoing use for who knows comes the next wave for sustainable living, agriculture, and forestry systems as we finish out this 10-year plan. And folks, uh, those of you who are just tuning in, we are speaking with David Abaz, and Round River Farm is the place that he's located just outside of Finland, Minnesota. He and his wife, Lisa, I think moved there 87 is the year I recall. That is correct. I want to cover some of that history because the reason I'm having him on today is because better than anyone else I know, David and Lisa have been intentional, planful about reaching their goals. And their goals are definitely linked to the earth and to the future of this earth, caring for it. Because of that intentional action that you've taken, David, you've been an inspiration to me, and you're significantly younger. You're 10 years younger than I am, and you're so much on goal. One of the things that I've observed in the world is there are a number of governments, including right here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, they've got a plan, okay, by, you know, 2040 or 2050, here's what we're going to do with respect to our energy usage, carbon releases, and so on. They've, they're, they're putting these things together. But 2050 is going to be too late. So I really appreciate your plan, which bring into focus how an individuals can say, okay, this is where we're going and this is how we're going to get there. And we're going to talk about those specifics, folks, as we cover the 10-year plan that David and Lisa are now following. First, I wanted to mention, you moved there in 1987. Uh, my recollection is that you and Lisa were on your way out to Maine. The plan for what you were going to be doing when you moved to Maine fell through. You stayed up all night studying the world and found there's this place named Finland, Minnesota. And you said, okay, that's where we're going to go and we're going to make this happen. Put that in your own words. And uh, people, you shouldn't trust mine to be accurate because I have failures of memory. But I believe that's what David told me a number of years ago. Yep. And basically, you're exactly right. We were planning to go to Maine. We had established a farm. We were going to caretake in central Maine, Dover Foxgrove, Maine. And I was going to be governor of Maine. Actually, that was the <laughs> original 30-year plan. We had a whole whole ideology, a nonprofit we were going to start and farm and a whole thing. In fact, I had been so involved in Maine, I studied all the governors, the government. I wrote a song on top of Katahdin, the highest peak of Maine. And anyone I dated, there was two things they had to agree to. One, that they were willing to, to be part of a farm. And two, that they were going to be able to move to Maine. And so when my wife woke up in the middle of the night sobbing in this little trailer in the middle of the desert where we were working, we were working at the High Desert Research Farm, a seed preservation farm. She woke up sobbing and, and I said, what's wrong? We're newly married. We just got out of college. I'm 23. She's 22. And we're heading to Maine after this six-month honeymoon on the high desert research farm and she's crying and she's reluctant to tell me why she's crying 
she basically said, I don't want to live in Maine. I want to live in Minnesota. Now, she's a Minnesota girl, and a lot of people who grow up and live in Minnesota, they seem to want to return to Minnesota. And so I was like, but that changes all our plans. And so that morning, I went to a little Adobe library, pretty much the size of a small room, looked at the encyclopedia. Remember, there was no internet back then. Uh, looked at the encyclopedia, looked at tree type, snowfall, access to an ocean in Minnesota. And I came back to that little uh, RV in the desert to, with my wife. And I said, OK, we can move to Minnesota, but it has to be Finland, Minnesota. She says, well, I don't know if there's any farms, you know. And I said, I don't care if we're going to Minnesota, it's Finland. And she, to get me off her back, and it was a great concession, said, okay. So we drove at the end of that six-month honeymoon in New Mexico back on our way to Maine, and we just stopped off in Minnesota and did a little trip up north. And on that trip, a local realtor who now is our neighbor showed us this piece of land, and we bought it. And we bought it because prices were just devastated in this region because the mine had shut down nearby. And land was going as cheap as $50 an acre back then. And so we actually bought it. And then in the spring, we went on land, started building our cabin. And we moved there 35 years ago with the plan to live there for the rest of our lives. And so that's how we got to Finland, Minnesota. And there was none of the infrastructure. Did you have you have road going up the hill to where your cabin was? Is? Let's say there were two tracks with a big high grass area in the middle. Okay. <laughs> so uh, there was a passageway without trees, but m no one would call it a road at that point. Let's talk about the role of environmentalism in your decision. Was this equally deep for both you and Lisa at that time? We're talking mid-80s. And so environmentalism certainly is widespread, a passion amongst many people. It was your passion in particular? It was both of our passions independently. And it was heartfelt. Everyone has seen the destruction of overconsumption, overuse of energy on people's lives and actual people being killed for such type of conditions. And then we did study overseas and I studied under Mahatma Gandhi's followers and was truly motivated to figure out a better way to live that would do that motto live simply so that others can simply live. It didn't make sense to me nor my wife, Lisa, that so few could have so much at the cost of so many, including the wildlife, including all of God's creation, which has, we feel, its own right to live and, th and flourish. And so our environment was pretty core and still is today. And it really affected all of our decisions moving forward. And our decision to move to a site for the rest of our lives was the intention to become one with the land, the intention to really dig in deep and see what we could create, co-create, actually, because the land taught us so much. And we didn't have a lot of money in the beginning, and we didn't bulldoze and other things that other people do when they come to a piece of land. We slowly built our way with our little savings each year or loans from our parents that were repaid every season as we made Christmas wreaths for people. And we slowly built up our soils, slowly built up our land and our infrastructure to get us to the point where we live, frankly, towards a little too decadent for many people. 
<laughs> You're too decadent. <laughs> Even though we are off the grid without a year-round road, it feels like a lot. So to get away from the internet, because we have internet now on our farm, to get away from all these modern off-the-grid situations, we actually have a tent on the back 80 acres of our land where we sleep from May 1st to, to November 1st just to get back so we have very little between us and nature. So we've been an ongoing journey of trying to maintain our connection with the planet, with the earth, while also developing some creature comforts that allow us the extra time to have us enjoy more things. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, David, was because I really think and well, I, it's too bad maybe that you're not governor of Minnesota and or Maine and or Wisconsin or many other states, because I think you could put together for each of these states a plan that would get them in the direction of care for the earth that is so lacking in even when they make lofty goals, you know, by 2050 will be carbon neutral or whatever. I have my doubts that they're going to live up to that but I have no doubt that you'll live up to yours. One last thing about your relationship. I'm in my second marriage, and this one began in 1994, and you and Lisa predated that in your first only marriage. But we both did something similar in our marriages. I did it in both of mine. My last name is Helps Meet. I grew up as a Judkins, and she grew up as a Masoner. What did you grow up as, David? Yeah, my maiden name is Bartlett. And my wife's maiden name is Trexel. And we chose Abaz, which means trees. And so that was our choice to kind of make a new path, uh, neither name from a patriarchal history, and one grounded in trees, which was also a very important aspect of our lives and love. We've talked a bit about your values, both yours and Lisa's values. You mentioned your time uh, studying with the followers of Gandhi, which obviously comes out of the Hindu tradition, but is is worldwide, I guess I'd say. Did you and Lisa have religious upbringings of your own? Yeah, absolutely. I was raised a uh, PK, a preacher's kid of a Presbyterian minister, and Lisa went to Christ church in southern Minnesota outside of the Twin Cities. And so church and religion was very important to both of us, actually. It was a formation of our high school years. We carry the blessings and the curses of the various faiths and obligations within those faiths. And we also both explored what our faith should be together. So like we each had our own name, our own names growing up, we each had our own faith positions, and we changed our name and we changed our faith together. And that's been our journey, our 35-year journey together, to follow a path that exceedingly requires action and us to live out that path, or in our opinion, why have it? And so that's where it led us to being a Quaker and a friend. And our lives have revolved around that kind of branch, along with care of earth aspects that sustains us today. 
Well, let's talk a bit about your plan. First of all, the 30-year plan that got you to where you are, that you were already a, a few years ago. You bought 40 acres, you built structures. There's a barn, there's house, there's extra houses, there's sheds and all kinds of things that are part of that 30-year plan. You had a windmill, you had, when Sandra and I stayed with you, 2002, 2003, we stayed with you for a few days. We got to observe how you managed in windmill Enter your energy usage. Talk a little bit about the infrastructure you put in place by the end of your 30-year plan. Yeah, so we have a stone timber frame barn, the stones from our fields, the timbers from nearby forests. We have a house with basement and root cellar and greenhouse. We have a, uh, the original cabin that was on the land that was so porous, a candle would get blown out when the east winds blew. So it was very, very cold there. That's now been fortified with insulation, a novel thing, a new roof, a couple bedrooms, and a place for the firewood. But the first building we built, as tradition holds, was the sauna. And the sauna was the original house that every homesteader built when they first came here. And many uh, were Finnish immigrants that came and settled in Finland, Minnesota. So we have the barn, the sauna, the cabin, and our home. We have a shed roof by our parking area where we wash vegetables. And we have uh, four high tunnels that we take the plastic off each year. And there won't be many changes for the structure, but how the structures work and how the structures are sustained. We are off the grid, so we have small solar arrays. And we had the great fortune of being able to purchase after we started making some money, the back 80 acres. So altogether now we have 120 acres and the back 80 acres has a 30 acre lake on it. And that's where we put our six month summer tent so that each night we can sleep out there and then return to the farm in our work. Whereas both of us can and I do work from home with my university job now. I think part of the infrastructure you put in place was a whole lot of learning that you did. I think you were installing photovoltaic solar and windmills when that technology was not widespread. It wasn't a lot of knowledge. And I think you even taught it at the folk school. up. There. We've done a lot of teaching of sustainable living, solar power. I did a lot of installing for about 25 years. And my wife and I did lots of classes from gardening to sustainability and so, yeah, those are all part of our journey. I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On our site, you can find a link to all of our guests for Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. For the past 17 and a half years, I've been doing these programs. You'll find a link to connect with David and Lisa via round-river.com. So it's Round River with a dash in the middle there, roundriver.com. The link, as I said, is on northernspiritradio.org. And you can follow up a little bit. It's not like all of their information gets posted there, but that is a place where you can get glimpses of what, and be able to reach out and find David that way as well. Also on our site, there's a place for you to post comments on our programs. We love hearing from you, getting your input, your direction, your feedback. And it's because we love two-way communication. Listening to my voice or to David's voice is not enough. We need you to enter in the conversation because when we work together, we change the world more effectively. You can also make a donation to Norton Spirit Radio on our site, uh, on our Facebook page. 
In any case, any way you help us will be appreciated. Also, I'd love to have you support your local community radio station. David connected me with one of the community radio stations in his area. It's just south of him a little bit. And that's how I got our first station in Minnesota carrying Northern Spirit radio programs. So we reach out to KTWH. So we're so honored to be carried on that station. And what I want to say is all the stations, KTWH and all the others, deserve your support because alternative local sourced news and music is very important to thriving community. We need to build roots. And the few performers or the few news sources that reach nationwide are not enough to have local communities grow. So please support them. Again, we're speaking today with David Abaz, who masterminded, I guess maybe conducted in a retreat with his wife, their 10-year strategic plan. And they've already come so much further than most of us have done. It's well worth learning from their experience. This plan includes seven different aspects. I'll just read them off. Energy and transportation and water, shelter, work and community, food and spiritual. Those are all of the elements that they laid out. And I'm going to ask you a little bit about how you chose those categories, David. I'm sure there's other ones that you considered, maybe tossed out or didn't. But so many of them are so clearly related to your place on the land and how we nurture the earth. But the one that maybe other people would not have naturally included was the spiritual one. So let's start with that. Because I've already asked you a bit about your spirituality. Your spiritual plan, 10-year plan, includes both birthdays and anniversaries for you and your kids, and it includes the major dates in the year that are related to spiritual connection. Tell us about the dates that you recognize as part of your connection with the land. Well, along with uh, special dates with various family members, and frankly, we try to have every day special, but that's challenging to do, but that's our goal. We have our seasonal on the solstices and the in-between solstices to uh, remind us about the cycle, mostly force us to take the time to reflect, to breathe deep, to stand in the forest and recognize how much we are given, how beautiful the earth is that we are in, and to remind us about the needs that are yet unmet in our communities. And so we celebrate many different ceremonies. We're coming up now close to the spring equinox, and we have a nice prayer area where we intentionally take our time to connect. And I think one of the things that we've learned over time is the importance of intentionally connecting with things, making intentionality uh, so strong that it actually keeps us in our path. And I'll give you one example as part of our spirituality that's led from a physical reality. And that's not having a year-round road, meaning that we have to walk a half mile. And it's our winter half of the year that's covered. And it forces us to separate ourselves from the mechanical, busy, crazy world we live in. And by doing that, every time we return home, we're forced by our circumstances to walk a half mile. 
to figure out how to get there. And we get to see Northern Lights. We get to see the stars. We get to breathe deeply the cold air. We get to take the snow. And it forces us to be in nature, which we feel is the same as being in the creator and the light. So having some physical limits, some physical parameters to keep us from ourselves. Because we, if we had a year on road, guess what? We would use it. And we'd go to our car, we'd get from the car to the house, and we might limit our time in nature. And so every decision that we make, we ask ourselves to deliberate on how will it affect our connection with what we find meaningful with the earth. And for example, when we were figuring out, you know, bucket baths are really good, but it's hard and the place gets all icy in the winter and it gets slippery. And a lot of people would say that's really not the best way to shower. But then someone said, well, what about a sauna? And we built that sauna, first building we built, but we had to weigh. We'll be spending time indoors bathing. Is that what we want? How will that affect our time outdoors? And what we found in our deliberation and then in practice as well to support that was a sauna not only increased our time in the environment, it increased our enjoyment in it as well. So now even though we heat up in our sauna, we go out on the porch and instead of running back in because it's cold, our bodies are so hot we can enjoy and sit and stand under the stars. And so what actions will result from different lifestyle choices? So switching from a bucket bath on our porch to a sauna did not reduce and, in fact, enhanced our connection with the environment in a meaningful way. And it also provided a really great place to warm up and to have comfort within a wintry time. And I've had the privilege of being in your sauna with you 20 years ago now, I think, was the last time we were there doing that. But yes, I've experienced some of the riches of this land. Again, folks, we're talking about Finland, Minnesota, which is more than halfway up the state. I don't know, two-thirds of the way up the state uh, of Minnesota. So this this is not for Southerners necessarily. This is for a hardy breed. You mentioned, by the way, the half-mile walk home David, you didn't mention that it's uphill. So, no. <laughs> and I understand that back when the kids were young and when you were heading out from the house, you could sled down that hill. Still can, yes. And, you know, and it gets to be kind of like a luge run, right? It's got a nice carve to it. And so when it gets bright conditions, the record from the top to the cars was 55 seconds, meaning we're going about 30 miles per hour average speed. So... Most of the time, it's slower, and sometimes it's downright so slow you have to pull going downhill. But it helped on trips, and it helps to go to work when we do have to go to work outside to have it downhill that direction because <laughs> um, it makes it easier to go, whereas coming up the hill makes us – I think if we had to go uphill to go to work, we never would go. So uh, that's one of the things that's been really nice, and it is a significant – it's a 300-foot rise in that half mile – so it's a, it's a significant run that gets up some fun speed. I think it's really important that we talk about some of the nuts and bolts. And again, you've been off the grid the entire time you've been there. That's right. You've never connected up. You're not feeding your power. You're not linked into the grid like a lot of people are these days. Your first power, was it photovoltaic or was it windmill? I think it was windmill first for pumping water and then photovoltaic for a radio and a light. 
and a light as opposed to a bank of lights or a house that's all lit up. Solar back then was very, very, very expensive. I wanted to ask you about that because on the plan that you've turned out, the 10-year strategic plan, you compare the price per watt of energy at the various times. Talk about the comparison, where you are, where you were. Yeah, well, our first watt we paid for back 34 years ago was uh, about $11 a watt plus shipping. And today, to get that same watt of power, it's less than 50 cents a watt. So it's gone from $11 to 50 cents over 34 years. So huge price drop during a time it should have risen greatly with inflation. It should have tripled with inflation. Yeah. So we're talking an incredible, interesting opportunity now to power ourselves with solar. And we still have our original panels. They're still working. And we still have our original inverter, the first one of of 10 built in the country, 48 volts. We have the original of the first 10 built and it's still working. My son wants to change it out to more modern one, which would be cool, but we don't want to switch it until it stops working. I understand you installed your first photovoltaic in 1994. That means that you were already on the property for what, seven years or something before you did that. Yep, that was our first system. We had two solar panels at our cabin from the beginning, and that's what ran that light bulb and the radio. And so we had what we'd call a very micro system. And even our solar system we put in 1994, most people today would say, you power yourself with what? So it's not a lot of power. Uh, We had the great opportunity of, because it was so expensive, really honing our design to reduce our loads as greatly as possible. An example being our refrigeration is on our porch of our house. And with an average temperature in Finland, Minnesota, 38 degrees annually, having a refrigerator on the porch is of great savings. And so those are the types of things we had. A refrigerator was 10 times more efficient than the Energy Star-like, and it was outside. So those types of design ideas really reduce our loads and then make it possible to live with less. What is your watt maximum that you're producing uh, from your solar system? And I understand that Colby has his own system uh, in the cabin where he lives, uh, your son Colby. So... What's your system? Well, ours is a 2.3 kilowatt system. That means 2,300 watts. And that's what's produced and sent into the batteries. And there's losses all along the way. And in the winter, it'll produce about two hours worth. So we're looking at 4.6 kilowatts of power per day on average. In the summer, we're looking at about six hours. So we're looking at like 12 kilowatt hours of production. And so that's what we've been running our home and farm on. And that's after we've added solar three different times onto the original panels. So it's a hodgepodge of panels. Folks, just a reminder, you are listening to Spirit in Action. We're speaking with David Abaz of Round River Farm. Their website, round-river.com, links on northernspiritradio.org. And we're talking about his 10-year strategic plan. And essential to the strategic plan is how do we dovetail with the earth? A lot of local governments, state governments, national governments are doing their 20-year, their 30-year plans to try and reach carbon neutrality, to help prevent 
horrific climate change. David and Lisa Boz have taken it into their own lives starting in 1987 to make a property which is reaching those goals far ahead of these other governments. If only David were governor of Minnesota, we'd be so far ahead. So energy, a couple different aspects of energy that you haven't mentioned. You refer to some things as microgrid. I remember when we were there, you had batteries down in your lower floor, they, it was essentially below earth grade level and batteries have changed as well, I'm sure. So what are you talking about microgrid versus the other powers areas like in the cabin and so on? They're just because they're all separate microgrids. What are you referring to there? Yeah, typically people go off grid and it's for their home and that's what it's powering. That's their home power. So there are advantages of having many homes or several homes put together for a microgrid. And that allows some flexibility between use, some technology sharing, some backup sharing, and it allows some uh, greater resiliency to that system. So that's what a microgrid, this will supply enough power for our home, the farm, my son's home, and another dwelling if that uh, so comes to be. And so the three different systems will be intertied and connected to provide some of that flexibility into that system. So that's what the microgrid will be. It's it's more than one home put together into a system of, of technology. One of the things that I found is an issue with the home where Sandra and I live is it's wonderful to be surrounded by woods but trees end up blocking and using the solar energy and, and grabbing that. And so when we've considered putting photovoltaics on our house, they say, well, it's not going to work unless you cut down those wonderful old white pines there and so on. How do you deal with those kind of issues on your land, especially when your last name is a boz, which means trees? Right. Well, the reality is a, a farm does naturally lend itself to open spaces. So we do have open spaces. A lot of trees are covering a lot of our southern exposure, but the barn and house are all uh, in front of them are the fields, which allows for that full solar gain. And that's one of the advantages of micro grids or community solar is it's putting the solar where it does best and then using it elsewhere in other homes. And so part of that flexibility I talked about is it doesn't all have to be on every home. We can figure out how to make it work most efficiently. So we're not cutting down trees to do solar. That would be nice not to have to make that trade-off. It is one of the things that many people have to take into account. I'm hoping that our Spirit in Action listeners today are saying, well, how could I do this? And just a pointer, you've been self-taught and you've gone to a lot of sources. I assume you've taken a lot of workshops how would you suggest people access enough of the information? Of course, the internet exists there. Maybe there's a the perfect website to go to. How should people do this if they're making their own 10-year strategic plan, 20-year, 30-year, whatever they're doing? How should they approach that? Well, I think the biggest obstacles for most people that I've encountered is the thing between their ears. Our heads start to think too much and we are like, we want to do something, but then we're like, oh, I can't. I don't have the skills or I don't have enough money or we do those types of games. We all do it. So one of the things I would suggest is that you recognize that I myself, who've been able to do this over years, I was raised by a you know preacher as a preacher kid who 
I, I wasn't brought outside. I wasn't showed how to hammer. I wasn't taught about electricity or plumbing. But being curious and being interested, and now with the internet, I can build almost anything with a couple videos. There's so much out there. So what I'd say is uh, change how you think about it. If you want to do it, you probably can do it to one degree or another, even if it's a small degree. And then it can build on that. Because when we did all this, we didn't have any money. We systematically slowly built it. And we didn't have any skills to speak of to do this. But with the need, with attention, with finding good uh, people to teach you. Like I hired a plumber for one day. I watched him plumb. And I was like, oh, you know, most things are multiple things, simple things put together in a sequence. You know, each part is not hard. And so if you watch carefully, now you could even film it so you could refer back to it. You can become your own plumber. You can become your own thing if you want to, if you can spend the time. And the biggest thing that keeps you from doing that is your head saying, oh, I don't have time. But I do know myself, even living off the grid, I spend too many hours on TV or on other things, watching things, YouTube videos and other things. I know there's a lot of time we all spend doing things that aren't very helpful and maybe even don't make us happy. And so... I think a lot of us have more time and then there's resources that one has to always consider, but a lot of things you can do and increment your way forward. And in your 10-year strategic plans, speaking of plumbing, water is one of your aspects. And you talk about your water well, which you had, pond and irrigation, farmhouse water, farmhouse rain ponds, and your rainwater collection systems that actually gets its own line item where do you get your water from? You do, you still pump from your well, don't you? So we still pump from our well, but we did just convert it from a pump that would need a big truck to come out and change out to a pump that we can use with our own equipment and our own hands. So we can work it ourselves. So it's lighter, it's electric, and that system should work for generations to come. So we can always pull it out ourselves, change the pump, put it back with our power, and we're running it off our solar. So we've gone from the windmill to electric, solar electric, as a future transition towards easier maintenance and easier care and power we can have even when it's not sunny. Because a lot of our driest periods were also windless. Without wind, we didn't have enough water to irrigate the farm. But we also have our roofs. Our barn roof is a 1,000 gallons every inch of rain. Our house roof is like 600 gallons every inch of rain. So we have rainwater collection systems for other uses. Uh, we have a 10-acre swamp at the edge of our farm fields that collects the rain. And we dug a hole in it, and we pump from that for irrigating our crops. So it's great and very resilient to have multiple ways of getting your water. And so even if you're in the city, you can collect rainwater off your gutters. And you can collect thousands and thousands of gallons and use them for various activities. Maybe not drinking, especially if you're an asphalt roof. But you basically can calculate that by picking a 100 square foot section of roof and counting 60 gallons per inch. And that will give you an idea of how much potential you have for water collection. And so those are all different aspects of our water systems. And we're pretty much close to where we want to be with the water system. So as you can see, there's not much left to invest in that. What is this meditation ponds thing? I hadn't seen about that before. It says when you, you meditate on something instead of getting your farm work done? <laughs> it's basically the idea of creating beautiful places 
And when you create beautiful places, wherever you are, often it has water in it. So the idea is also to, we have $100 to convert some of our old equipment, an abandoned hot tub into ponds that we dig into the ground. We might put a fountain. We might put a little waterfall going down it and put some nice plants around it. And that's what I look forward to doing in retirement. And we still have some time to do that now. We've just built a elf house that we're going to put up by the lake to help house our elves. So there's some fun (laughs) things we can do along the way because sustainability with just work and just plans isn't very sustainable. There's the spiritual life. There's the emotional life. There's the beauty life, like a meditation pond that reflects on your spiritual life. And there's games and activities. We have a badminton court. Up at the lake, we have a, a, a wiffle ball field and our farm. So incorporating cultural, fun, community activities is also part of sustainability. And at the very least, it makes life worth living. Well, there's two more aspects, two more chapters, shall we say, to your 10-year strategic plan. One is work and community, and the other is food. We've talked about some aspects of food. You have, much more than most people, been very planful about your food. You've put up food and here's what we're going to eat each day. That's certainly been important when you've had very limited resources, when you were living in poverty. I have a sense that maybe you've loosened that up ever so slightly, but I still think you're living on a subsistence level when you've got incomes that are well above that. We live uh, still pretty low, but we have, uh, let's say that the food we buy now is more luxury than it used to be. We went one year without shopping for eight months, so we could probably live fully, but I do like uh, a good ice cream sandwich every now and then, and we generally don't grow that. And so, you know, our food aspiration is to get 100% local, you know, 85% from our farm and 10% from Northeast and uh, 5% remaining from our region. So the idea is to get all of our food. We could live on it as it is if things got really tough. But there also is that joy factor and that celebration factor and occasionally a little treat here and there is what we've grown into. And that's just what we've done with our food. So that's a kind of an aspiration. And in our 10-year plan, we also put dollars, what it would take to do. And there's not much we have to do beyond our regular maintenance of our farm, of our fields, of building soils. I'm actually looking, uh, probably we'll be revising a plan because all plans are a good guide, but you can continue to revise plans. I'm going to be adding some vermicomposting into this. And we've shifted some of our income from growing vegetables and other things to growing climate forward tree seedlings. And so that's part of our, our plan moving forward is shifting some of our activities while we continue to work on our food, while we continue to feed our neighbors through a farmer's market. So food is also linked to work and community which is one of our other topics and planning sections. And that deals with what kind of lifestyle do we want? Which organizations do we want to support with our time and energy? And uh, right now it also includes our jobs. But I'm hoping, and both of us are hoping that Lisa will be able to retire soon because of being intentional with this plan. And that would give her an opportunity to shift gears. She'll bring still bring in some income, but less and less responsibility and hopefully a lot less stress, but nothing to the degree we've been dealing with now as both directors of two different uh, organizations. 
Well, one last category that the Abbas family has been involved in and is a crucial part of any decent 10-year strategic plan. You call it work and community. And so you've got the work that you've been doing, that bringing in resources from outside, but it's also the community that roots you and supports you. Talk a little bit about those aspects of your plan. Yeah, well, it's just to recognize the other things we do in life as being important. You know, so I've been part of the Finland food chain, which is working at uh, getting food resiliency and greater local consumption and production. I'm part of the Soil and Water Conservation District, one of the supervisors. I get to play a little bit pickleball and other things with friends. My wife's on the board of a couple new enterprises. One is the Land Access Alliance, which is a nonprofit established to acquire lands to then make land accessible to those without, especially people of color in our region. And so there's different things that matter. Uh, she's also part of a women's Lake Superior plunge where a whole bunch of women get together. They go to Lake Superior every month and they dive into Lake Superior all year long every month of the year and have for the last three years. So those are the types of things that remind us how integrated we are with community and how sustainability doesn't exist without community as well. And so it's more than just what you can do in your own home or your own farm. It's how are you connecting with, how are you being part of a communal decision? Again, folks, we're speaking with David Abaz of Round River Farm in just outside of Finland, Minnesota. His website, round-river.com. You can track down a little bit more about what they've done ever since they founded the farm back in 1987. His 10-year plan that they're in now is bringing them to retirement, is allowing them to live on the land. And and David, I would mention, this has been a question that Sandra and I have talked about. Sandra is 73, I'm 68. And so we say, how long can we live in the country? What transportation do we need? These questions are really important. It looks like you and Lisa have made a plan that'll carry you on so that maybe you can die on the land. And just a few weeks ago, I was at the burial of a Quaker friend that we have from southeastern Wisconsin. Dave Hackett is buried on the land. Is that part of your continuing with the land? Is that part of your plans, a green burial of that sort? Absolutely. In fact, that's on our list this year to get part of our land designated as a cemetery for a green burial. So we've been doing a lot of research on that. I'm less worried about that because I'll be dead. It's more important, how is our life going to be while we're alive? Basically, you know, we have the technical things we're working through. How do we get up and down the hill? How do we get to the doctor? How do we age in our home? Uh, But also the other aspect is what are we building around us to support that? So we have our son living in a cabin. We might have someone else living on the land. My brother's interested in moving here. And so having community and interconnected systems on the land allow for flexibility, both economically, but physically too. So when our wood fire, it's hard to haul lumber in to throw in the fire. That can be brought in by someone else living on the land. So it's the community we build around us, too, that'll enable us to age and to be buried here. And so that's all part of the plan. One last perspective I'd appreciate from you, David, and that is in your 30-year plan was the plan to be governor of Minnesota or to run for governor of Minnesota. 
I'm aware that a lot of the world has not pursued with your passion and with your dedication the kind of vision you've had. But I'm aware that this earth could be a much better place if we did. One of the trade-offs, I think, would be the number of ice cream sandwiches one could eat. So how close do you think we can come as a society to caring for the earth in a way that will prevent climate catastrophe or that will prevent eradication of species, the mass deaths that are going on already. Uh, what's your perspective in, in terms of vision or hope for the world? If you were making up the 10-year strategic plan for Minnesota or for the United States or for the world, what would be your outlook? If I had 10 years for a plan like that, I'd probably do the first and second year creating opportunities for people to fall in love, fall in love with the earth, fall in love with each other again, to fall in love. Because when you're in love, those sacrifices like no ice cream sandwiches aren't sacrifices in the end. I remember back, you know, the idea of when you're dating. When I was in the dating mode, I dated a long-distance runner. Well, I became a long-distance runner during the time I was dating her. And I ran up to 20 miles a day. Did I call that a sacrifice? No, I was in love. And so if we can fall in love with our surroundings, with the future generations and what we leave them, then we'll have the motivation and those changes that need to happen won't feel like a burden they'll be filled with joy. And so what I'd say, I am hopeful, but I'm not delusional. I think, what is the alternative to do nothing? I think it's very, very important that we do something. What we've done already to the planet is going to cause great hardship. But what we do today and tomorrow is going to mitigate that hardship and mitigate the extremes we emit onto our land. And so what can we do and not do what I do or do what Mother Teresa does? What can each individual do and do well? There's this big pie of opportunity and one slice is designated for you. So make that slice really good, do it well and make that pie worth eating. And I think that's the token. Whatever you do, whatever your gifts are, make that a loving place for all and the world will be transformed if we all follow our passions and do the best we can with the intent of making it a better planet for us and for our ancestors to come you certainly set a high standard and a beautiful inspirational standard for all of us david you and lisa together working in community and i'm so appreciative of both the example of your 10-year strategic plan your 30-year strategic plan your vision for a future that's filled with love and i'm so grateful that you joined us here today for spirit in action thank you very much for having me Again, folks, on northernspiritradio.org, we'll have a link to David and Lisa's site, round-river.com. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.